Hello, this is Nick Parker. Welcome to the X-Zone, an episode four of the Yellow King Blues. Today, we're going to be opening the 13th and 14th files, as supplied by Adam Jones. In these files, from FBI Special Operations Group members, Special Agent Greg Parisi and Special Agent Justin Hawkeye-Pierce, we hear the team's continued work to find remissing reporter Vanetta Davis and uncover more of Victor Steno's criminal connections. Before we get going, though, I wanted to share some critical information about some of the team's research into the Baton Rouge rail yard site, where, with the help of Delta Green, the team foiled Dr. Shine's sacrificial ritual. I'd say one of the things that makes me believe these files are actually genuine is the sheer number of notations, addendums, even post-it notes uh, that we uh, find within them. And as we unseal them, um, you know, it looks that whoever tried to hide and bury these files was pretty exhaustive in their efforts and they gathered as much of the available collateral as they could. In terms of the X-Zone, obviously we can't podcast every single one of these sort of addendums or additions. We're purely focusing on the key entries to tell a cohesive and coherent story. But I can assure you that these support notes do exist. And when, I, when relevant, obviously I will include them. And we're at that stage today uh, in one of these files, in fact the file uh, belonging to uh, Agent Parisi, uh, there is an uh, organogram. And that organogram tells a story about the companies concerned. So the FBI had uh, uncovered that Pyramid Shipping, who owned the former Amtrak site, was a sub-company of Horizon Logistics, a much larger international shipping conglomerate, with a number of other shell companies under its ownership. Horizon Logistics itself turned out to be a subdivision of New World Incorporated, a privately owned corporation headquartered in the Bahamas and owned by billionaire recluses Thalassa and Marius Chandler. Now, whilst there were no obvious connections back to Victor Steno, uh, there's a note on this file from Agent Parisi that says that the Chandlers have been big donors to Republican Senator John Dane, uh, he's from Louisiana, who was on the committee, had oversight of the Bureau of Land Management's auction of industrial land in the early 2000s, and the Amtrak yard was part of this sell-off. All right, so now you know that, let's move on to Special Agent Parisi's report in file 13. Special Agent Greg Parisi, Personal Journal, Saturday, November 22nd, 2008. It's about 7 o'clock at night and I'm still in the goddamn office. So, Nolans is just getting weirder and weirder. Oh, and a whole lot more deadly day by day. I seem to remember Agent Chan saying that something about the city being sick. And you know what? I think she was onto something. I bet she's glad she got the recall to Quantico when she did. Devereaux and Pierce think that Devlin was behind that move. Devlin this, Devlin that. But I don't know much about that myself. Still, for the rest of us stuck here, the sickness, well, it lingers on. At some point soon, this patient's either going to go into terminal decline or we're going to be the antidote for a miracle recovery. So, the day began with another body, this one being New Orleans transit cop by the name of Patrolman Des Ryan. He got the short straw. 
night watch at the Amtrak station where Pierce and Wilmot nearly got their tickets punched by McAvoy yesterday. So it turns out that our Hells Angel is the persistent type, and he returned, ninja clad, to break into Veneta's locker, number 312. Yeah, okay, so in all the excitement, Wilmot neglected to check the locker. But then again, Pierce had the key, and as he got shot and went to hospital, well, it wasn't readily available. So I think we can forgive ourselves for being distracted, and McAvoy was coming back whatever. I'm guessing he was taking that locker out, see if Vanessa Thompson had any more friends he and his buddies could take off the grid. Anyway, McAvoy gave Ryan a whole new smile. Damn near cut the poor guy's head off. And he was clearly in no mood to wait. Busted that locker wide open. What looks like a very uh, impressive and very hefty kick. Turns out, though, that whatever our murderous douchebag thought was in there, <laughs> wasn't. You gotta love dumb criminals. As actually what was in there could now be very helpful to us. But he obviously didn't know that at the time. I'll come back to this later. So me and Wilmot had a chat with the murder police, found out they had Charlie Parker in jail on a suspicion of having colluded with the killers. And no, not that Charlie Parker. Charles Hadley Parker was former NLPD, now head of security at the Amtrak Terminus, and the guy Pierce met before getting shot the day before. Parker got turned out from the cops after the post-Katrina corruption investigations for being on the LCN's payroll. Uh, he said he had nothing to do with nothing, but I uh, no. Wilmot and I had our doubts. We went on to join Frost, and J.B. Third was seeking out this GMC Van Dura van. You know, we all spent a lot of time talking and walking, but uh, to no avail. Wilmot and Chiefy decided to continue their canvas in the bars and jive joints that don't come to life until late in the evening. It was a good call. Weaving their way, and with Chief, I use those words advisedly, from joint to joint, and spending quality time with the bottom feeders, they finally bumped into a fragrant transient by the name of Claude Covell, a trash picker to whom the words personal hygiene might as well not exist. Now, Mr. Covell was wearing a Saints jacket with a tag from an independent forensic lab based in Dallas-Fort Worth. It kind of piqued their interest. And after Claude was convinced to cooperate, it emerged he'd found it on Wasteland out by the rail tracks. So, props to the newbies. They went there, did some canvassing, and found the packaging the jacket had been held in. Addressed to, guess who? Vanetta Davis. Other transients helped put together the sequence of events. McAvoy came here having boosted the locker, opened the package, discarded it. Clearly, was not what he was looking for. He was then picked up by his cohorts in our van, who then did their vanishing act again. With the jacket came a report from the lab, a confirmation that there was no gunshot residue on it. This verified something we had gotten from the ray tape about an innocent man sitting on death row, and we now think we know who that is. His name's Edward Cook. He's 22 years of age. He got the sanction close to his 18th birthday for the shooting of Gloria Edwards. She was a lawyer, civil rights activist, 
and the wife of New Orleans DA, John Edwards. Now, Gloria had apparently been stirring things up regarding the city's skin trade, and in late 2004, she was allegedly close to exposing a sex slavery in connected to Steno. Law enforcement of all stripes believed that she was assassinated, but the official report was that she was the victim of a street robbery gone wrong. Well, you know, I sure know which version of events my money's on. There's a street rumor as well that says it was Boy Tesh's initiation killing. Speaking of which, that fuckface is still around and in serious need of being put down. I gotta give him one thing, though. The guy has balls the size of footballs. He pulled Wilmot and JB3 on their way back to the barn over and threatened them. It looks like they might have been exposed to some aerosol hallucinogen in the process, as they are both in a pretty strung-out state by the morning. They both have strange stories to tell about shape-shifting and weird faces and, well, they look pretty pale. While they were doing their thing with the jacket, Frost and I had a chat with Freeman's lawyer, Randall Gale, and his security man, Doug DeLillo, the leader of the Italian Opera Lovers Society, whose members helped us out at Halloween. So they're going to spread the word on our Hells Angels, but it sounds like they have their own problems that continue to develop. Open season on the mob from both Steno's gang and our own OC teams. Toledo said some interesting things about Devereaux and her connection to the former head of our team here, Mike Hamlin. He's presently on admin leave while OPR continue their investigations. The implication being that she's still in Hamlin's pocket and maybe under his duvet too. Hmm. Well, it sure seemed that she was none too keen to discuss that situation, especially the implication that they were romantically involved. We're going to check Hamlin out later tonight. Just pop in and say hi. Then, Sunday, uh, we've got the weirdness of Devlin inviting us to a football game at the Superdome. Saints, home to the Colts. Yeah, should be a good game. But why our erstwhile boss with a bug up his ass has suddenly become our new best friend? Well, that's a bit of a mystery. Just another weird event in a long chain of them. You know, stay here long enough and weird. Well, it kind of becomes normal. This is Hawkeye, personal journal, Monday, November 23rd, 2008, Los Angeles. Okay, so it's been a busy couple of days. And dear diary, I apologize for having taken this long to get some stuff down on paper. It's just, well, some of this shit takes processing. Saturday night in the Big Easy, and we rode on to Mike Hamblin's place, the former leader of the ill-fated 2005 version of the SOG team. On the way, Frost and Chief got into it, and it was still going on when we got to our destination. <laughs> Poor old Chief. I remember how it felt to be kept out of the loop when you just know your own colleagues know more than they're saying, so I kind of cut him some slack. Eventually. One day, though, we're going to have to get him into the green camp. And one day pretty soon, the way things are going. Anyway, Hamblin's lakeside residence is a mini Fort Knox, which is perhaps not too excessive for a man with a lot of enemies. As it turned out, there were three less of them. Parisian chief found them in a tarp draped Chevy hidden down by the side of the lake. They looked like Mick City gangbangers to me. 
whose ambush plans, well, were, well, ambushed. We tried to make entrance to Hamblin's property, but other than attracting the attention of the NOPD Lake Patrol, we drew a blank. Then something happened whilst we were checking out his boathouse, and it's something I've seen before. I didn't entirely believe my eyes then, and I don't think I can entirely believe my eyes now. Frost said it was a biaki, and Chief put two big holes in it. Yeah, we all watched, open-mouthed, as it sank beneath the dark waters of the Pontchartrain. I suppose at least we know now it can be killed. I had a chat with Nick at the Opera Lovers Society about the whole affair. He reckoned it was waiting in ambush, probably summoned by Steno as insurance if the Mid-City crew missed. Well, strike two for the bad guys then, I guess. So having failed to knock up Mike, we decided to roll on to Devereaux and talk Turkey about this whole situation. Her thoughts were that in 2005, Mike and his crew faced down Screech's Bayou cult. Apparently, Katrina could have been a lot worse if Screech had his way. It kind of makes you wonder, doesn't it? Worse? How much worse? Well, in the arcane packing order, Screech played his cards, apparently, but wound up with a busted flush, putting Steno in the driving seat. So now, Screech is in Vic's pocket as opposed to the other way around. Hamlin is in the wind. I know she knows where he is, but she says she doesn't, and I know her well enough now to know that she won't give him up to me or anyone else. It's kind of frustrating because, you know, we're, we're up against something big here, and bad, and really could sure use any extra resource, but that's loyal Cecile for you, and I guess in the future... It's comforting to know there's one person you could trust with a secret and know for sure she'd keep it. So does Sunday. And thanks to Devlin, we had sideline tickets for the Saints versus the Colts at the Superdome. Of course, this was not management altruism at play. It was more of a chance for Steno's point man, Charles H. DuPont, to show his white-whiskered southern motherfucker face and lecture us on men's rights and which side we should be considering coming down on. He even offered us boy tesh on a plate, although what we'd have to do in return was left unspecified. All this in a private box frequented by the great and the good, and done with his damned murderous smile. I asked Devlin later point blank what his deal with DuPont was, but the reply was enigmatic at best. He was keen to ram home the fact that he controls us, and knowing Devlin's type, I suspect he's smart enough to play both sides. I was glad that Devereaux had risked his wrath by going to Hurley about Veneta. It gave us some license not to get railroaded off track. And as Devereaux said, well, she should be our focus, our only focus for now. I caught up with Nick before he left the state, as DuPont had shared a quiet moment with me, directly threatening Delta Green and telling us to stay the heck out of Steno's way. If it phased him, it didn't show, and I don't know whether that makes me more or less confident. Fact remains, we're all the DG has in the region, although I hope to God they're going to be able to bring some more resources to bear if we find something to target. 
Well, Monday came, and I managed to get most of us out to L.A. to check into these Hell's Angels, the Sons of Twilight. Wilmot and Parisi picked the short straws of death duty back in New Orleans. Devlin was trying to work out what angle we're playing, but the fact that most of us are out of his hair, well, that probably won the day. L.A., the city of angels, where the sun always shines even when it's raining. <laughs> well, we checked in with Agent Brooks at the DEA. He drove us up to Van Nuys for an orientation drive around the neighborhood. Sure looks, the Sons of Twilight have a nice little deal going on here. Laundering money that they invest in business and property so they can keep their little white paranoid enclave just the way they want it. Yeah, California, Uber Alice. <laughs> How the hell a black reporter got anyone around here to speak to her is beyond me. That girl was clearly brave, insane, or a bit of both, which I guess makes her a friend of ours. In which case, hang on, girl. Cavalry's coming. Well, some intriguing developments there, and with a touch of paranoia, I think. Anyway, we'll see you next time for files 15 and 16, when I also hope to have an update from Dr. Campbell on her trip to Ireland for the Exo. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.